Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Samar. Happy Thursday. And uh, today is Thursday, June 22nd. We're in the uh, blessed days of Dhul Hijjah. We're actually going to be having our Eid holiday um, or Eid holiday for the Muslim community worldwide, marking the um, the annual pilgrimage, which will be um, on Wednesday. So for those that will be observing, happy Eid to them. Summer and I will be speaking about cultural uh, appropriation of uh, Palestinian culture, uh, that and more when we come back. This is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. Stay tuned. Welcome back to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Summer, um, you picked this song. Yeah, it's not Balti, Ahmed. I know he is your favorite, but we're going to be talking to a Palestinian from Bethlehem today. So I thought I can use my talent in picking Arabic music and Palestinian music. Yeah. 
It's by, I think, Lu'ay Ahmaro and Natalie Saman. Natalie Saman. Is that like uh, the English name Natalie? Yeah. In Arabic, you can say Natalie. Natalie, is that an Arabic <laughs> name also? No, it's a Christian name, and I think she's a Christian. Okay, well, um, I mean, you and I both know that you can be Arab and Christian. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not like a common Arab name. Mm. It's like uh, George Bsharat. So George is not Arab, and Bsharat uh, uh, is very, very Arabic. You can be anything, and like you can be Christian and Muslim and be Bsharat, because it's the Bashara, the good uh, tiding of mm -hmm. the good news. Right. But George is not going to be Muslim. Oh, so in the Arab world, you can tell, sometimes you can tell people, you can tell who, what their religion is by their name? Not only likely. the religion, not only religion, but also uh, if you are Moroccan or Tunisian or North Africa, or if you are uh, Saudi from the Gulf, or if you are from the greater Syria, or if you are, for instance, Lebanese, you can know if you are from the north or the south, or if you are a Muslim, if you are a Sunni or a Shia or a Druze. So family name uh, is very, very telling. Uh, for instance, for my last name, uh, Dahmash, it, uh, in Egypt, uh, south of Egypt, uh, Ahmed, there is the Dahamsha. Mm -hmm. uh, clans okay. in Sinai, the Dahamsha. Uh, so in Saudi Arabia and in Yemen, there is Dahmash, but they all kind of like of some clan or Bedouin origin and stuff like that. So it's, it's not only that you can tell if you are a Muslim or Christian Arab, but also where in the Arab world you are from or Originally? which Mm. Yes, for instance, like when you say Nabulsi, uh, there are people from Palestine are from Nabulsi uh, family. It's from Nablus. It's like calling. It's like uh, if your name included Floridian, or yeah, you know, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're still or the Tampian or Tampian. The Tampian. Yeah, the Tampian, the one that hails from Tampa. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I was getting my teeth cleaned yesterday and uh, my hygienist, she said, oh, uh, you know, my neighbors have the same last name, but uh, they're Lebanese. Are you for, are you also Lebanese? Are you from Lebanon? I said, no, I'm from Egypt. She said, oh, interesting. They have the same last name as you. And um, it's true. Like my last name, there are people in Syria and Philist in Palestine, in Arabic, uh, Palestine is Philistine. And even in uh, parts of the Gulf, um, in Arabic, I guess it's uh, Budayr, the classical Arabic. Mm -hmm. So there are families that spread out, but maybe originally, originally might have come from the Arab Peninsula. It means a small full moon or like a mini full moon or a miniaturized full moon um, comes from the word Bedr. And then when you make it Budayr, I guess it's kind of a... I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I'm actually looking now on the, uh, uh, on the net, and it depends if you are saying Bidir or Budair. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting. Yeah, Bidir uh, is like, that is how they pronounce it in Egypt. Budair is uh, how they pronounce it in the classical Gulf, Arabic. classical Arabic, and even in Syria. I had a Syrian friend 
who was also a dentist, and his last name was Budeir. He spelled it in English a little different, but it's uh, the same in the Arabic uh, letters. But today we're speaking about Philistine and cultural appropriation, and we have a special guest who's joining us uh, um, shortly. Uh, Why did you pick this topic, Samar? I picked it because actually a few days ago was the Falafel uh, National, like World National Day. What do they call? uh, Falafel Day, yeah. uh, Falafel Day. And uh, hi, Fadi. Good to have you. Alhamdulillah. So, Fadi, just uh, uh, please mute your uh, mic for a few seconds until Ahmed and I, thank you, uh, tell our listeners why we are doing this show. So, a few days ago, actually, June 12, Ahmed, it was uh, Falafel Day. Mm -hmm. uh, In America or where? Worldwide? Worldwide, yeah, people Mm -hmm. who care about Falafel. I never heard of it. Yeah, I think the UNESCO uh, designates days for also cuisine and food, especially that there is a lot of cultural appropriation, not only of Palestinian or Arabic food, but of food in general and culture, preserving cultures of minorities. So you will have maybe the national dress of the Eskimos one day or Mm. whoever. Yeah, I looked it up uh, and it says it's the International Falafel Day, June 12th. So... Yeah, so Israelis are uh, is a special kind of people, uh, like maybe uh, very uh, pro-Israel uh, and anti-Palestinian. I have like three of them who follow me and I follow them just to see how we both think and uh, saying, oh, it's Israel's uh, national food. Oh, wow. So, so that, that's really not the story. The story is... Uh, so Palestinian jumped on it and said, no, uh, it's uh, Palestinian. Then Lebanese said, what? No, it is Lebanese. Then mm-hmm. the Egyptian said, hey, guys, this is Egyptian food. <laughs> yeah. So you, so the discussion ended up between like a mini cultural fight between the Egyptians, uh, Lebanese, Syrians and Jordanians. And uh, everyone is saying we do it better than the other. But of course, if you, uh, I mean, as a Palestinian myself, uh, I remember uh, going one time, I invited my husband to the Ritz Carlton. Mm. Uh, and like, Fancy. This is 20 years ago. Fancy. Yeah, you know, his birthday. So, uh, and then I'm ordering lamb and then Israeli couscousy. So I'm thinking, like, how? So I called the waiter and I told her, um, I was in Morocco and Couscous is Moroccan. Mm. And she says, let me ask the chef. So he comes, she comes back and she says, it's the size. Yes. And I, Mm. like, my husband told me this is supposed to be a nice dinner. But anyways... Uh, there is cultural appropriation and food appropriation of Palestinians. And we, I thought maybe I will talk to Fadi Qattan because he's a well-known uh, Franco-Palestinian chef from Bethlehem, from Palestine. Mm. And um, he has uh, a restaurant, uh, I think it's called F- uh, Fauda in Bethlehem. But he also opened one uh, in, uh, um, in London But during COVID, he did something very, very fascinating, which is going to all the villages in Palestine and talk to Palestinian women about our food. 
and how it is really Palestinian food. So I want to welcome Fadi Qattan uh, on uh, True Talk. Thank you, Fadi, for uh, joining us. Uh, Thank you, Samar and Ahmad. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, welcome. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Fadi, uh, before we start uh, talking about the difficult part of this conversation about, uh, uh, you know, uh, appropriation of Palestinian food, tell us a little bit about your background. I know when I was researching and when I went to your website, it says that you have uh, studied hotel management at the Institute Vatel. But I'm not sure if hotel management means also being a chef and uh, an expert on food. So enlighten us about uh, your background, please, Fanny. Ooh, I, 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 I don't think I define myself as an expert on food. Let, let's start with, with how do we all learn about food. That's how I learned. I know it sounds very classic, but I did learn in my grandmother's kitchen. I mean, that's really where I, I got the bug for food. And then I, my mother's a fantastic cook. She, she still has her hair rise when I call her and ask her for a recipe because she expects me to deconstruct it. And I can, you know, you can imagine her going, oh God, what is he going to do again? But um, formerly, I, so I come from a, a very old Bethlehem Palestinian family that has been in trade for years, for generations. So when I told my parents I wanted to become a cook, it wasn't necessarily greatly accepted. So we made a deal. That's how I ended up studying hotel management. I, I actually did my BA in business, and then I did a master's in hospitality, where I concentrated mainly on the cooking side of the um, of the, the, the craft, but also um, some of the management, some of the hospitality, some of the marketing. And I think that the Paris experience was, was quite interesting because that's where I realized so 25 years ago how important lo local produce was. Um, and then I came back to Palestine, um, worked for a short while in a hotel. The second intifada started and the hotel I was working for closed down. Um, so I ended up working with my family business with my parents who actually sell commercial kitchens. So I was on the other side of the trade and I used it to create the first Palestinian cooking competition. Mm. And I was stunned that most chefs were competing with things like seared scallops and duck a and, and I, I couldn't see a single local product. And I think that that fueled my, 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 uh, very passionate and stubborn attachment to, to local produce and cuisine and wanting to represent all those beautiful artisans and trade and crafts and farmers through a plate. Because, you know, we sh I, I was listening to what you were saying earlier before, before I came on, and we won't talk about appropriation yet. We'll talk about it in a bit. But, but what I'd like to, people to remember is you know, we chefs are, we don't do much. The people who really do much are the farmers, are the butchers, are the, um, you know, the foragers, everybody who actually allows us to then, you know, have a good time trying to create a, a nice recipe or, or cook something that's tasty. But there's this whole 
attachment of people who, who work very, very hard to, to make our craft possible. Um, and, and those in Palestine, I think, are heroes. They're the real heroes. They're the ones preserving our cuisine. They're the ones transmitting our cuisine. It's it's every Hajjah who picks Zatar, despite being forbidden of picking Zatar. It's every um, Palestinian craftsperson who's on the ground, um, running a shop, running a, running a farm, uh, foraging. These are really the ones that are, I mean, I think everything we do is just an ode of respect to them. So what is Palestinian cuisine? If we want to uh, tell our American le- uh, listeners who lump maybe the Arabic uh, food as just Middle Eastern or Arabic, uh, in Tampa we have so many Arabic stores uh, and people have to be really experts to figure out if this is Egyptian and if this is Lebanese or Syrian. So what is what is what is Palestinian food? What how is it different, for instance, from uh, the Levant or from uh, Lebanese or uh, Syrian or Egyptian or Moroccan food? Samar, are you making it on purpose to actually use every word that gets me to tick? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, she does yeah. that. She does that to me all the time. It's a skill. So, and, and let's do a, a lesson in, in, in words. The Levant is a French term that was invented, the Levant, which means where the sun rises. And it was used to describe anything that was east of Rome and Italy. Quite a big bit of the world is east of Rome. I, I, I cannot accept anybody using the word Levant to, to describe, you know, that, that quote-unquote, that other that's just east of mainland Europe. Like, that, that is totally insane. Now, the Middle East, I think, Ahmed, if, if I, if someone told me the correct information, you're Egyptian. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, Masri. The, Masri. So you and I cook Murukhiya. Yes, and different. If, if I would serve you a Palestinian Murukhiya, you'd just look at me and be like, no, this is not Murukhiya. Yeah. And vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Middle East is such a generic region. Um, so, so those are terms I think, you know, we shouldn't... And because of what we're going to be speaking about later, which is appropriation, I think terms like Levant, Middle East... Mediterranean cuisine. I mean, what do I have in common with some chef in Marseille? Not much. Not much. You know, maybe we we both have the same passion for olive oil, but upstairs. Um, you know, what do I have in common with a Egyptian, uh, a Spanish chef, with a Tunisian chef? Like, we don't have the same terroirs. For Palestinian cuisine, so I think we can separate our cuisine in, in two types of food. One, there are the dishes that are like purely Palestinian, i.e. musakhan, uh, makluba, um, you know, those kinds of dishes. And then there are dishes that are stayed within that part of the world with, with different takes. So we just gave you the example of mulukhiya, which the Egyptians cook, the Lebanese, the Palestinians, the Syrians. Actually, the Tunisians cook mulukhiya in a very different manner because they dry the leaves and transform them yeah, into... it tastes so oh. ba- different. I, I actually didn't like it. <laughs> they wanted to say badia, yeah, Ahmed. And the Sudanese. <laughs> uh, they, the, Sudanese the Sudanese put badia on it. 
Exactly. And the, you know, the Japanese discovered Mulchi in the 1970s, and now it's one of, you know, it's practically oh a, an ongoing staple that you buy as a health food in Japan. So um, there are commonalities. What we have to remember is most of that our region of the world was occupied by the Ottomans for 400 years. And like any other empire, food travels in an empire. That's why you may end up, so you were mentioning the falafel story earlier. I mean, I won't rub you the wrong way. So mm. falafel, the, the, the initial idea of a fried chickpea dough is Egyptian. It's from, they say it goes back as far back as the pharaohs. Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah, I won't argue with that. But then it traveled up north and we, we you know, we made it a bit... Sorry, it's sexier. We, we put in some parsley and some coriander and made it a bit more green. But so is falafel Palestinian? It's not only Palestinian. Is the falafel in Palestine Palestinian? Of course it is, because it's our take on falafel. It'll change from the tamiya that's done in Egypt, but it'll change from the falafel done in Beirut or in Damascus or in Amman. So there are commonalities. But to make it simple, Palestine, there's three main terroirs. The terroir is, for, for the listeners, if they, they're not familiar with terroir, because it's used really to talk about wines, but in reality with food, it's the same thing. So it's a combination of the type of soil, the type of landscape, the expo exposition to the sun, and the nature of the human knowledge or crafts that are in that space. So in Palestine, we make it easy. There's three terroirs, there's the coast, there's the inland olive grove fig type of landscape, and there's the desert. So the desert brings the nomadic culture. That's why we see produce like Leban Jamid, which is a dried yogurt. We used to do things like mensaf. Um, it's very present in our cuisine. It also brings all that fresh dairy produce with the um, sheep herds. So we get Zibda Baladiya, which is fresh uh, butter. We get Samna, which is clarified butter. All of those come very much from that nomadic Bedouin culture. In the, what I call the, the fig and, and olive landscape, um, which is places like Bethlehem, like Jerusalem, like Ramallah, like you know, Nazareth, um, those are spaces where olive oil will be predominant, where um, a lot of herbs, so herbs like huerna, which is hedge mustard, uh, herbs like luf, which is a, a cousin of the iris, uh, but of course zatar, of course akub, which is a thistle that's gundelia, it's called pardoons or gundelia, um, th those rhythm our cuisine, you know, the apricots. And then if you're at the coast, it's the citrus fruit, it's the seafood, it's the, um, you know, zibdiyat gambari, it's the sayadiyat samak. Um, and then if you go a bit south, we have one exception, which is Gaza. Gaza has been influenced a lot by the Egyptians, Ahmed. Mm -hmm. um, so there are flavors like which are used in Gaza, which are not used in the rest of Palestine. Um, the usage of chili is very present in, in Gazan cuisine, 
which is not as present in the rest of Palestinian cuisine. But what we have to remember is all of this is true until 1948. Why? What happened? Well, um, 1948, the Nakba, Israel is created and leads to the displacement of approximately 800,000 Palestinians. So people who are in Jaffa ended up in refugee camps in Beirut, in Bethlehem, in Gaza. So the people who were cooking on the coast ended up in you know, basic tent given by the International Red Cross in places that were not at all familiar to them in terms of food. Um, people who came from Akka, which is up north, which, you know, I mean, Akka is known for its fish, all of a sudden ended up inland in a refugee camp in the Jordanian desert, etc., etc., etc. So the, the 48 changed a lot the link of people to, to their natural habitat. And, and when we talk about indigenous populations living on indigenous um, produce, um, that was all, you know, I mean, people ended up practically overnight going from people who had land, who had, who lived the seasons, to people who had to survive on what the International Red Cross and then just after the, the United Nations would give out, which was flour, rice, oil, powder milk. So you can imagine, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the rest of the impacts, but if we're just talking about food, you can imagine the impact on food. And very much in resilience, a lot of Palestinians that ended up as refugees, the first thing they did was plant za'atar in a milk tin can or go to their to the neighboring town and, and try and buy a sprig of apricot trees to plant in front of their tent. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMF 88.5 FM. My co-host Ahmed and I, Samar, are talking with Fadi Qattan, who is a Palestinian from the city of Bethlehem in occupied Palestine and he owns several uh, restaurants and he's an expert on uh, food and he did uh, work in London and Paris but went uh, back to Palestine and uh, he did something quite interesting which is produce videos uh, by talking to Palestinians. We're going to be talking about it uh, maybe uh, later on but uh, Fadi you are saying and like from reading your uh, from your website uh, and part of the description is that you're trying to reclaim a cuisine that is part of a broader Arab uh, tradition like hummus, falafel, tabula, fatush, shawarma. You didn't mention muhammara, but I added it. Um, why why is uh, Israel uh, trying to um, label these? these very, very Arabic foods and Palestinian foods as Israeli. What are they trying to do? Wow. Um, big question. So, just a comment on, I'm not trying to reclaim, actually. I, it's ours. And we're not going to reclaim it. We just have to tell people the real story. If you see what I mean. Um, we don't need to 
reclaim what's ours. It's not, never would somebody that does not acknowledge the origin of food be successful in reproducing that food. You know, there's a magic word in Arabic, nafas, which means the breath. But you, you mentioned earlier, I, I during COVID, I, I went around the country and met all these grandmothers cooking. And I would get very frustrated because I was doing the same recipe they were doing, and I would never get the same results. And I said, you know, I asked all of them, but what is the secret? I mean, Palestinian grandmothers are impressive. They can chop an onion in their hand, like not using a chopping board. And I did all these little tricks, and I thought those were the secret, and it wasn't the secret. The secret was nafas. Um, and I think nafas is something you can't steal. If you don't have that desire of hospitality and sharing, um, you can't steal nafas. So the Israeli chefs that steal Palestinian cuisine can go on trying to do it. It'll never be the same. But why are they doing it? So look, the reality of this piece of land, this part of the world, is before the settler colonial project of creating Israel uh, started, the locals were of Samaritan, Jewish, Muslim, Christian faiths. And we more or less happily lived together. We were, you know, as long as Constantinople didn't need more taxes, they more or less let us be as Palestinians. Because I, I very often hear, you know, oh, but Palestine doesn't exist. And the first writing of the, the word Palestine comes from the Roman Empire. And so we've been around for at least 2,000 years as a defined geographic space called Palestine. Anyway, um, when Israel was created in, in 48 and then, you know, went on to occupy the rest of Palestine in 67 and, and so forth, um, the Israeli establishment needs a narrative of linking them to the land. So we get the biblical narrative, of course, of, oh, but we were the promised people for the for the land. Um, you know, I, I've never seen a real estate agent called God. So I, I don't believe in, in any, you know, any spiritual being writing off a piece of land and saying nobody else can live on it. We, I'm talking to you right now from my great-grandfather's home that was built in 1880. Um, nobody can come and claim this is not mine. Um, but the narrative is necessary. So when I talk about Jaffa origins, I'm not talking about about them just as a Palestinian. I'm actually talking about them because my family owned Jaffa oranges way before the creation of the State of Israel. For the Israelis, that narrative is necessary because how do you justify occupying a people's land? How do you just, because I think people today worldwide are no more ignorant. Now, Israel sold myths like, oh, we had the desert bloom. And people today, because they're becoming more environmentally conscious, wonder things like, oh, well, where did that water come from? 
you know, bad news. It was nicked out of the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley, uh, the Jordan River, and that's why we're having an environmental disaster on the Dead Sea. Um, and, and things like that. People are more and more aware. But the narrative of hummus is ours and, you know, falafel is ours and shawarma is ours serves within that colonial um, justification of where we come from here. You know, when Israeli chefs steal hummus or msabbaha, I, I, I very often wonder, well, you know, you're stealing something from my cuisine. Can you at least steal something that you can pronounce? So don't pronounce musabbaha, msabbaha, and hummus, hummus, etc. And then if you do steal it, can you just acknowledge that it's somehow mine first? So look, I, I don't mind an Israeli chef cooking hummus. Just say it's Palestinian. Just like you would expect, um, you know, when I use an olive oil, in, in whether it's in London or in Bethlehem, from a certain place in the world, I say where it comes from. When you buy, actually for, for the listeners, I you know, you have to be very aware. When you buy a bottle of wine off a shelf, the bottle of wine has to say where it comes from. There's something called the Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée in France. There's the Indication Geographique Atypique in Spain and Italy. Um, in the U.S., you cannot say that a wine comes from the Napa Valley if the vines have been planted elsewhere. Why is this all of a sudden not applicable to Palestine? One of the reasons they... I'm not sure why there is echo. Uh, one of the reasons or excuses, Fadi, they say, well, you know, so many Mizrahi Jews uh, came uh, and uh, they left the Arab world. They were living there and they brought the hummus and the shawarma and uh, all this cuisine. What do you say to that? So, look, first, we have to agree on a point. Cuisine is not religious. There's nothing called Christian cuisine, Muslim cuisine, Jewish cuisine, Hindu cuisine. There are cuisines that are linked to, again, a terroir, a culinary space, a culinary tradition. So if you are a person from Baghdad, regardless of what your faith was, you're eating Iraqi food. Yes, there are certain dishes that are used for certain religious feasts. Yes, there are certain dishes that are used by multiple faiths for different feasts, but those still remain within the culinary heritage of uh, people in a nation. Now, if, if as we sometimes claim that the Mizrakis who came from different parts, different countries around us, came with this cuisine, it doesn't make it Israeli. So if somebody who's from Aleppo in Syria, who's originally Jewish and ends up in Israel and cooks kebab from Aleppo, they should still acknowledge that it's Syrian kebab from Aleppo. Um, it doesn't make it Israeli. I mean, you live in the United States. Is pizza American? Well, bad news, it's not. It's Italian. And you're not allowed to say it's American. But yes, there's a humongous Italian community in the United States that came with pizza. It doesn't make it American. Yes, in France, the third or fourth most eaten dish is couscous, but it doesn't make it French. 
Couscous is North African. Right. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5. We're speaking to uh, Palestinian chef Fadi Katan from Bethlehem. He is the uh, chef of the restaurant called Fauda, which is, I guess, chaos. Um, like, is that the meaning of the of the the word? Exactly. Chaos in Bethlehem. It's actually uh, located inside a, I guess, a, is it a hotel or a type of uh, bed and breakfast called Hosh El Syrian. Yep, correct. Uh, so, how do you function as a restaurant within the you know occupied land? Are you able to get your groceries and things that you need? You know, like here, I guess, restaurants in America they have accounts with, I don't know, or. Restaurant suppliers and they drop off things daily. Uh, how are things? Are there obstacles of running a business or a restaurant as a Palestinian under this uh, the occupation of Israel? Of course. So what what, what you have to remember um, is we are under so in Bethlehem itself, for example. Well, there's no direct occupation, i.e., we're not totally under the Israeli army control. But everything around us is, and therefore access to the city and access out of the city is controlled by the Israeli army. Um, the farmers who come into the market have to come. So we we don't we're not we don't have sovereignty on. Um, there's no continuity and sovereignty on our territory. So, for example, the villages that are south of Bethlehem have to go through a space of land that is illegally under Israeli control. And that is very much linked to the general mood of the Israeli establishment or the specific mood of an Israeli soldier on a checkpoint, if you make it through or not. But imagine how uncertain that is. Now, in Fauda, I made it even more complicated myself because we actually don't have a menu. So we serve a set menu that is designed every day from whatever produce I find in the market brought in by farmers. So so there's a double uncertainty, i.e. I can end up one day with a kilo of tomatoes and the next day with 50 kilos of tomatoes and I have to come up with something to do with it. Just to clarify, Fauda is, um, is not open right now. We closed just with COVID and we haven't reopened yet. Mm. We're, we're in the process of hopefully opening soon. Um, but Making, I mean, running a business under occupation, actually living under occupation, is not something that's normal to us, to any human being, wherever you are in the world. Imagine if to drive from Tampa to Miami, you needed to go through 10, 15 military checkpoints manned by young kids. You know, when we Palestinians have a take, a take a stance against occupation, very often we're told, oh, but not all Israelis are the same. Correct. There are Israelis that have stood against the occupation and have been very vocal denouncing the occupation. But what you have to remember is all Israelis, men and women, are obliged to do their military service. 
Therefore, you end up with 17-year-old kids controlling your daily life on checkpoints. Uh, men do three years, women do two years of military service. The ones who object, because there's a lot of them, and, and there's, I think, more and more of them, but I'm not sure with the numbers, uh, don't end up getting an easy life, definitely. They access to universities, access to jobs becomes much more complicated. But I, I wonder, you know, in, in the United States, I know a lot of people during the Vietnam War ran off to Canada not to serve because their consciousness did not allow them to, to be part of a violent military occupation of another country. Um, I, I wonder how come people take a stance or not. And and if, I mean, I always say the best thing about being Palestinian is we don't have an army, a military service. So, so I never had to carry a gun. Uh, but I imagine if I was in a country where I had to, I would run off rather than carry on anything that is violent. Right. So uh, those obstacles exist. Um, now, Bethlehem is obviously, you know, is commonly known as the as the birthplace of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And you get, you know, uh, pilgrims, p- people traveling there, tourists from all over the world coming to see uh, the birthplace of Jesus, uh, peace be upon him. Uh, are people surprised? I guess you must encounter a lot of uh, people coming from America and the West. What is the reaction as far as, are they surprised by the circumstances and the checkpoints that you described? Is this something they already know? Uh, do they return, you know, I think? It all depends, Ahmed, it all depends. So it depends why they're here to start with or, or when I encounter them elsewhere. Um, so the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, I think puzzles a lot of people in the West. And if we're talking about America specifically, I've had a few funny encounters in my life where I would tell people I'm from Bethlehem and they'd look at me and be like, wait, Bethlehem doesn't exist. And they'd go, it does. I, I, I literally live 800 meters away from where he was born. Like, and, and if what people forget also is Jesus was not a blonde, blue-eyed person. He came from here. He he looked more like me and you, Ahmed, and, and Samar, than than you know some some North European look. Um, but people don't expect that the oldest Christian families in the world come from Bethlehem. While it is very logic, I mean, you know, it's it's logic that. The first people who converted to Christianity are are from from, from the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not from the other part of the world. Um, but then, when people come here on on pilgrimages, they see very quickly. You know, but when you drive into Bethlehem, you you cross the internationally recognized line, but it's just a line on a map. Oh, physically, there's nothing because we're not a sovereign state. We're still under occupation. But you cross the international line and a bit further on, so you're technically already in what the international community would assume would be Palestine. A few hundred meters further in, 
you encounter a 12 meter high wall. The 12 meter high wall is three times higher than the Berlin Wall. That is what Israel built, started building in 2002, around the city of Bethlehem, but also around most of the West Bank, separating de facto Palestinians from Palestinians. So there the, the visitor, the pilgrim, the tourist starts wondering, but wait, is this the border? And when they realize that it's not the border because it's not really the internationally recognized line, then I think they start comprehending that the occupation is an ugly military control of people's lives. And then they come into Bethlehem and they see, you know, if they come in summer, they see, for example, that we don't get running water every day. So your municipal water, you know, the tube that comes into your house in Bethlehem stops for 10, 15, 20 days in summer. And then it comes in for a couple of days because our own water is exploited by the Israeli settlers and is sold back to us at three times more than it's sold to the Israelis. In places like Gaza, it's sometimes 40 to 50 or to 60 days where people don't get water. So the tourist does see this, of course. The pilgrim sees this. The thing is, what do they do when they go home right. about it? If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. We're talking to Palestinian from Bethlehem, Chef Fadi Qattan. Fadi, very briefly and very quickly, you said something, but uh, really, it is very disturbing. You mentioned the Zatar and how important is Zatar. Maybe you can explain to our listeners what we mean by Zatar, but you said that the Palestinians are prevented from picking it. Can yes. you elaborate? So zatar is the zatar is used both as a fresh herb and as a mix for breakfasts. The herb itself is not, as a lot of people say, it's thyme or it's oregano. It's actually neither of those two. It, it is from the family of oregano, but it is zatar. So the the Latin name of it is Oreganum syriacum. Um, it's a it's close in taste, I would say, to to the oregano slash thyme family, but it's much more pungent. It it has this peppery, spicy end to it. Zatar is an essential ingredient in in, in our daily life. You know, we, we mix it with sumac and sesame seeds, and and dip our our bread in olive oil and in it and for breakfast we. We use it in salads, we use it in meat rubs. And Israel decided 20-something years ago to forbid foraging wild zatar in Palestine. Even for the people who are people who think and believe in a two-state solution, it's not like Israel is forbidding Palestinians from picking zatar in Israel. Israel is forbidding Palestinians from picking zatar in Palestine. And that is where it's totally illegal to, for any foreign... So imagine if, I don't know, the Canadians start telling the Americans you're not allowed to go mushroom hunting. 
What legitimacy do they have? None. So why does Israel do it? Again, it's to... Control? It's to, Well, partially it's to control, and I think it's also to disconnect the Palestinians from the land. Because my generation grew up, you know, going around as simple as going for a walk with our grandparents and, and picking zatar and picking, not only zatar, picking all the Palestinian herbs, foraging for herbs. Um, that, that was part and parcel of, of our daily life. I wouldn't say daily life. I mean, but still, we would do it quite often. So you would recognize herb you would recognize where it's growing and it's tying you to this land. I think it's a very well thought way of disconnecting people. Now, the claim they have, these Israeli authorities, is those are endangered species that they're trying to protect. But actually, regardless of the fact that they're endangered or not, and I don't know if they're endangered, but very clearly, it's not their right to tell us what to do in our land. That by itself should be the, the end of a conversation. It's not, oh, but maybe it is endangered. It's, it is not their legitimacy and right to tell Palestinians what they do in Palestine. Simple. It's also, Fadi, a very important staple, and it's a filling one, fulfilling one. So if you are poor or uh, you do not have access to uh, food and money, uh, za'atar uh, with olive oil, dipping bread, pita, uh, Arabic bread uh, in olive oil and za'atar is very, very uh, filling in the stomach, yeah. I mean. Definitely. It's it's filling, it's full, full of vitamins, it's a very um, rich herb um, in terms of the, the, the health benefits you can get from it. But look, I, I don't think it's, it's in, like, I don't think the Israeli authorities um, are thinking of it in terms of, you know, not provide, like, not allowing Palestinians to access nourishment. I think it's more in wanting to change our way of lives and wanting to assert control on, on our ways of life. Um, but that is applicable to a lot of things. You know, it's applicable to um, that's Gundelia that's, that was forbidden of, of, for us to forage and then we were re-allowed, but we were re-allowed to only forage for personal use. So it, it feels like it feels like you're picking a, an illegal drug in your own country, which is not actually a drug and it's not illegal. Um, and I think that it's it has an impact on our on our like national morale of our link to this this place. I mean, you know, we live with the seasons of this country. And, and when I say the seasons, it's not the four seasons. It's it's really the seasons of, you know, some like right now we're in the apricot season. The apricot season is like four to five weeks. So it's not like summer, etc. And I think wanting, the Israeli authorities wanting to uproot Palestinians. And, and actually, you know, they've uprooted thousands and thousands of olive trees and, and also really wanting to erase the, the Palestinian presence in this place. You know, right now Israel has the most far-right government ever in its history. We, we've 
Um, but, I, but I do differentiate a bit, honestly, between what the state does and what actually chefs do with appropriation. Because I do think chefs have to have ethics that are different than those of a state. It's not because the Israeli um, establishment wants to erase Palestinian identity that Israeli chefs are allowed to go on cooking our cuisine without saying it's Palestinian. I do think chefs today, it's changed a lot in 20, 30 years. Chefs today worldwide have responsibilities. We are responsible about the food waste we generate, regardless of politics, whether you're a chef in in Tampa or in Paris or in Johannesburg, we are responsible for the planet. We are responsible for food waste. We are responsible for fair and equal employment in our kitchens. We are responsible for respect of local produce. We are responsible for sourcing and respecting the origin and tradition of foods. And, and I don't understand how Israeli chefs look at themselves in a mirror when they know very well that what they're cooking is not theirs and they're not acknowledging it. It's just acknowledged. It is not complicated. And it's it's a message to every Israeli chef. You can say Palestinian. It's not going to burn your lips. Just say it. Just like you say the truffles are from Alba in Italy. Just like you say the olive oil you're using is from this or that Spanish olive farm. Why don't you say it's Palestinian? Well, we'll have to leave it at there. Uh, Fadi Katan, uh, chef from Palestine, thank you for joining us. We're uh, actually out of time. We hope to have you back on again. Um, you pose some uh, important questions. So easy to say, but so difficult for so many, um, especially in Israel, to recognize. And I often hear this, and Summer and I hear this all the time, we've been hearing for many years, is why uh, don't Arabs and Palestinians recognize uh Israel's right to exist. Uh, Israel already exists. It's on every map. What we doesn't exist and is not on any map is Palestine. And uh, there's an effort, obviously, for many decades to erase it and to erase its history and culture. Thank you for being with us. Uh, hope to have you on again on True Talk. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Summer, we're out of time. NPR News is next. And um, as uh, Frank always wants to make sure that I say WMNF Tampa. Um, I hope you heard that. And um, now, um, Samar, I want to make sure you have a good weekend and also our listeners and hope to find you and see you at the same time, same place right here on WMNF, whether online, WMNF.org or at 88.5. Thank you, Ahmed. Hope to see you soon, inshallah. And thank you, Frank and everyone. And for our listener supporters who uh, helped us exceed our goal. Yeah. Have a we great are weekend. So happy.